Welcome to the Ian Bounsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. Analysis leads to paralysis. Or does it? Does analysis lead to paralysis? This very famous saying in the brass world is attributed, I believe, originally to um, Adolf Herseth, one-time principal trumpet of the Chicago Symphony, although it's a saying that all of us have used um, many times. Trips off the tongue very nicely, doesn't it? Analysis leads to paralysis. And it's obviously clear where what we're getting at. But there are two sides. There's the pro and the and the contra. Obviously, it's meant to mean that, you know, if you overthink things, if you spend too much time <clears throat> nitpicking and trying to analyse things, you're just going to go in a downward spiral, which, of course, we all know. We've already, we've all been there. I have so many memories of being... A kid, really, when I say a kid, I mean under 25. That's a kid for me now. I'm old. <laughs> you know, really working on perfection, perfection of articulation and sound and the legato's got to be perfect and the slide technique's got to be perfect. It's all got to be perfect. And what am I doing wrong? Maybe this is, you know, maybe I should breathe like this and my corners should be like this. My tongue should go like that. No, what's it like? What's my embouchure like when it's really good? And, it, and, uh, and uh, you finish up wanting to throw the trombone out of the... Uh, out of the window. And the number of times I've been stuck on things in a practice room, I think, ah, the concert just can't happen. It's just not going to happen. How am I going to do it? It's terrible. I'm going back a long time now. Back to the days when we used to do concerts, remember? Um. <laughs> and it's like, quite by some miracle, I'd get to the concert and it'd be, it'd be not only good, but it'd be astonishingly good. I didn't have time to stop and think and analyse. And that, of course, leads to a whole thought process all of its own, which is like, hey, you're overanalyzing, just play, just get on with it, just do it. And, of course, there's the big fad in teaching these days, which is just imagine what you want to happen. And, um, and uh, great, it's good, great teaching tool, great playing tool. You know, you've got this imagination, and, and it's great for people who... In order to imagine what you want to happen, you have to sort of work out what you want to happen. And the problem with a lot of people is they set about playing something, they don't have a plan. They don't really know what they're trying to achieve with it. So imagining what you want to happen is great. And that's the opposite of overanalyzing. So it can be very, very um, useful. But it's also an excuse, I think, for... An excuse, sorry. That's a bit direct, isn't it? Um, It's also a can lead to teachers, as I've said before, not analysing and not teaching a student to be analytical where perhaps it is necessary so to do. Um, and I always say, you know, it's like it's like um, getting a desk from Ikea, which actually my elbow is resting on right now. And you set out trying to build the desk and if all else fails, you read the instructions. But you have to have the instructions and you have to know what to do with the instructions. And I think analysis leads to paralysis is very often um, an excuse for teachers who perhaps don't understand totally 
how things work or or have been encouraged no that that's that's not fair of me they've been, they've been so encouraged by their own teachers not to think about the analytical side of things let's say technically analytical side of things that they haven't brought it into their teaching room um and i would however like to speak in favor before we go any further of analysis leading to paralysis and i'll tell you why to tell you a little bit of a story, an experience has happened to me with my um, class recently. One particular member of my class, who I shall not name, because that wouldn't be fair. Very talented player. Um, very talented player. And, you know, if you go to the doctor and you're complaining of stomach pains or stomach complaints, doesn't matter where you go, whether you go to San Francisco, Stockholm, Shanghai, Moscow, I wasn't just going to stay with the S's there, actually if I tried I'd probably have messed it up, Seville, there's another one, very good, um, wherever you go, Sydney, wherever you go um, around the world with a problem with your stomach, the doctor's going to ask you two questions. I'm not sure, the only difference might be in which order they ask you, but it's going to be basically, what's your diet? Do you eat regularly and do you eat healthily? And the other thing is, how are the, um, how are the movements? How's the toilet accent action? Do you go regularly? And if, if the answer to either of those is questionable, well, the doctor will probably say, well, look, before I start running complicated and expensive scans, why don't you fix those two and come back in three weeks? And if you've still got a problem, we'll deal with it then. That's in contrast with proper health services, of course. Um, and I very often have um, patients presenting, I'm sorry, sorry students um, turning up with um, apparent issues, apparent technical problems. And where I've got really tough now, as I say, can you play every major and minor scale in broken form in tune in time good slide technique good sound on every note can you do that and i i sort of spot check them so okay let's go let's hear it on the arpeggios as well so and um Invariably, of course, with the younger students, it's not necessarily where one would hope it to be, wish for it to be. And it's the same thing. It's like, well, look, do that, learn to do that, and then we'll talk about your apparent problems then. Uh, before we go any further, there are a small number of people who do find, for whatever reason, playing scales difficult. And I think... By playing scales, we mean from memory, or many of us mean from memory. And a good teacher, of course, will identify the difference between the um, less than diligent practicer <laughs> and those who perhaps have genuine difficulties learning that, at which point we need different strategies. Um, and ultimately, I guess for my purposes, it doesn't, 
Hmm, am I going to be too nice here? In, in those cases, it doesn't matter whether you're reading the music or not, really, because the purpose of a scale is, you know, in German, the tone lighter, the tone ladder, to get you up and down the register, get you moving from the bottom, the middle, the top, and vice versa of the register, get you moving around. That's its primary function. I think where learning it from memory comes in is... Um, I've always I've always been very clear to you know to say I am not a musical intellectual. I'm not a great. I kind of avoid you know analyzing chord sequences, chord structures. I tend not to do it, and I always say it's because it's innate. You know, it's just I, I innately understand the emotion of the chord, but questioning myself is that really or is it the fact that I know my bloody scales inside out and I know that every scale has a different emotion. So one way or another, I guess I understand the tonality, don't I? I might not name it as such, but I do. And of course, any, you know, as I've, as I've said before, the intelligent good person, or the smart, I want to call myself intelligent, but the smart person questions themselves, and I question my teaching all of the time. And I, <laughs> it, was, it was on a Sunday lunchtime, and, and I questioned, I was, you know, am I being um, too tough on, on, on this, this, this boy? Because, you know, I, I'm expecting these scales in broken form. And, and I wrote that to one of my senior students and, and I said, do you think I'm a bit too tough on him, you know? And, and as I was typing it, I realized that by Sunday lunchtime, I'd already played all of the scales in broken form. <laughs> I don't ask you to do anything that I don't do myself. Um, and actually is a bit of a postscript to this Story. It's been very enlightening for my class, who have uh, accompanied this very talented young student through the trials and tribulations of learning scales, and have with their own eyes and ears seen problems disappearing, vanishing. And we are literally uh, going to reach the point of... Uh, it's like, now you were saying you had some problems. There's something else that uh, I'm doing. I'm actually, this is a bit ad hoc. You're in my practice room. Here. One minute. I'll let you into a bit of a secret. I was asked whether I had any, what, what teaching aids I had, what I used. And I, as I look in my practice room here, there's uh, there's um, one trombone in the corner there. There's there's my wonderful Getson lying on its case there. And there's my son's trombone here. And um, he's learning, he's eight years old. He's learning the trombone. And, and one of the teaching tools that I have in my room is this. Possibly the worst drum roll you'll ever hear in your life is a practice pad. So as well as the scales, let's say you're going to do, I don't know, the uh, Sanson Cavatine. 
And this is going to be totally unreasonable and uneven. I know the percussionists listen to this. I'm so embarrassed, you know. You know, and you know, you, you can do that. You can break it down into all kinds of stuff. I have my son doing, you know, one note will be left hand, the other one will be, you know, right hand. So you get dotted eights running through, you know. And um, so that's something else. So it's been kind of like, okay, well, let's make sure you learn your scales and let's hear you do that. Just tapping, making sure. So you, and it's amazing how few problems <laughs> still remain after that, musically or technically. Um, indeed, the, the, the famous double bass teacher in Vienna, Alois Posch, the guy who used to sit behind me in the music fine and bash me on the head with his with his bow in almost every concert. My head was literally, I would say, one foot in front of the F hole of his F holes of his double bass. And just bang and a bang he pulled. You know the the, the the how the Viennese hold the bow, that German halton now bang he'd pull it back and he'd whip it off the string and bang it at my head at every concert. And then he'd be sorry, sorry, sorry in the concert. No, 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 it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Um but I know he said to his students, he'd say in tune, in time, right rhythm, right articulation, right dynamics, and then let's show we talk again. And I guess this is the basic, does analysis lead to paralysis? Yes, it can. And it's really important that you don't start trying to fix a problem that's not there. Not just in you're playing, but in life, are you doing the simple things right? There was a great thing on YouTube about this decorated military person saying, if you want to change your life, make your bed. You know, and you know where all that stuff goes. You know, start doing the simple things right. Um, so cycling back to the beginning, does analysis lead to paralysis? It can... Um, so before you start analyzing, before you start really do the simple things right, do the simple things really well. And that leads me on to, oh, no, actually, no, it doesn't lead me on. There's, there's another part. I've, I've recently, I find myself in a very unfortunate situation right here. Now I'm sitting recording this podcast for you. Um... I should right now be, what time is it? I should right now be in Tel Aviv. I should have landed. I had a trombone day for the Israel Philharmonic with my friend Nia Erez uh, on Sunday, planned. And um, I was due to be coaching the Israel Youth Orchestra next week on Shostakovich 9 and uh, studied all my scores, done all my practice. Oh, and I had a recital, a couple of recitals and... I'd got my swimming trunks packed. I was all ready to go. And then this new variant in South Africa uh, appeared. And um, still on my way to the airport, when I saw the BBC report that said uh, the new variant has been found in Israel, and um, we all kind of reasonably agreed that um, it wasn't worth the risk of me getting stuck there. So we thought it was going to go back to normal, didn't we, when we did certain things and it ain't happening. 
Um, there you go. Ho-hum, as they say. So I find myself speaking with you. Um, in my preparation for 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 these um, concerts that I was doing, I decided to be really honest with with my own students. And we've been holding some class meetings on Sunday because that's when you get nice rooms, you know, because none of my colleagues are around. So, so you get nice big halls. It's good. I've always done it. You know, two o'clock Sunday, meet up. And um, two weeks ago, I kind of just got got back from London. I'd been more conducting than anything else. And it was like, hey, this is emergency measures. I'm due to be playing the Rachmaninoff cello sonata in Israel, all of it. And it's like, wow, that, you need a lot of strength here. And that needs to be good. And what I did was I showed them the development, the progress of <laughs> my embouchure returning, if you want to put it for want of a better way of saying it. Um, and so the first time I played, I was brave enough to do something that not many people of my level are brave enough to do. I played badly, um, not deliberately. <laughs> it happened. It happens quite naturally to me sometimes. And no, it was the development. I just started increasing my practice. You know, I was going over the hour, hour and a half, sort of. I'm not a big practicer, as, as many of you may know. Um, and I played the two Gongold pieces, the uh, Marietta's lead and Piero's lead from Die Tote Stadt that I've recorded and played many, many times. And... I was focusing on what I wanted to happen. I was focusing on doing what I knew to be the right thing and releasing the air through freely and trying to create the music that I wanted to create. And um, the sound went thin when I went into the high register on a couple of places, but I knew that in a matter of days, of just doing the right thing and releasing the air the way I wanted to and creating the music I wanted to, that my face would would acclimatize for want of a better way of saying it. And um, sure enough, a week later, it's like, okay, listen to this. There you go. It's fine now. And what I was doing was I was showing them as I played these recitals through, with my left foot, if I tapped the floor after I'd made a mistake, that was a coincidental mistake that is just a casualty of the practice room, if you like, as my embouchure gets used to doing more playing. Basically, just due to kind of maybe perhaps overuse of the embouchure or whatever, right foot tap means, okay, that's an issue. I need to fix that. So next time I'm practicing, I'm going to work on that. And it's amazing how many left foots there were as opposed to right foots. There were very few. And I think that's the skill in the practice room. And that's this analysis leading to paralysis thing. Don't work on things that are not a problem. You know, I when I, when I play things, when I practice stuff, I'm putting mental post-it notes. I play things through. And I'll notice at a certain point, Okay, that was a mistake. Watch out for that tomorrow. Make sure that doesn't happen tomorrow. And, he, and you keep doing this day after day after day after day. And you find out what is a, 
an issue that needs fixing and what is something that's just going to sort itself out for itself. And that's the experienced practicer and not, you know, I'm, 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 I watch students looking to me because I am famed for being an analyst. I know what people had for breakfast. I know whether their bedroom is tidy or not. I can guess from their personality types. I can hear their playing and work out how they practice. I can work out what they practice. And I can work out how they're thinking. After years of teaching, you get used to being able to do this. And being able to guide people. And I think a lot of people come to me wanting that uh, guidance of, you know, look, could you analyze me and see what I'm doing wrong? Can you tell me what, what I need to do? And the answer is very often you need to practice. <laughs> but like this, and don't go trying to fix a problem that's not there. I remember um, talking to, I think I've said this before on podcasts, but I've noticed with other people's podcasts, they repeat themselves. Um, like a very iconic trombone player. Where he said, oh, stop me if I've told you this before. You, you've told me it before. But anyway, I remember in London having, having, I was practicing some solo stuff and I was really having trouble with it. I couldn't work it out. I couldn't, you know. And uh, I thought, Morris Murphy, the great Morris Murphy, just put a Star Wars film on, you'll know who I'm talking about. And he, he I was told by so many people he loved me. You know, we, we, we had such a lovely relationship and he was just like this icon to me, you know, it's like an honor to work with your hero and um he uh, i said morris could you come and you know can you hear this it's not working you know can you help me i could see him really racking his brain trying to trying to help he was really and he said have you tried practicing it i said yeah and he said no oh, oh, i can't help you then sorry <laughs> Going back to the scales issue, um, I did have a, another student. I'm actually, Branimir Slokar said to me, what was it? He said, he was my predecessor here in Bern. And he said, teaching is 90% police work and 10% pedagogy. <laughs> so it's 10% teaching people and 90% making sure that they do what you bloody ask them to do. <laughs> And um, I also, on the subject of scales, I have um, one of my students, he's a former Branimir Slokar student, and um, I said, so-and-so um, mm, can't play scales. What would happen with Branimir? And the answer was, well, he would have one lesson, and then he would have another lesson when he could play scales. <laughs> so I'm not alone in this. And... Um, Branimir also I had sometimes had this three splits and out rule. If you split three notes, that was the end of your lesson. I believe, I believe. I can't see that having worked with me. I think I would have just walked in and gone, yeah, and walked out, you know. Um, but, you know, that's uh, that's another thing. With, with but I, I found in a, a student, he came in and said, um, you know, I've seen so-and-so getting so much better, you know, playing the scales. And I've started doing it. He works for me. 
I said, yeah, but at the beginning of the semester, I spent one and a half hours going through a practice routine with the whole class, and I showed you that. Yeah, but he said, I, I, I knew my scales. I know, I know my scales, but, you know, so I didn't think I needed to. You need to. I need to. I do it. You should too. Do the simple things in life well. What we're talking about here is the difference between being special and being extraordinary. Let's look at that word extraordinary. Ordinary means kind of normal, doesn't it? Normal, everyday, ordinary. Uh, in fact, in beer, um, you had a um, lot of breweries back in the old days. You'd say, uh, could I have a pint of ordinary, please? Uh, or could I have a pint of special? And the difference in it basically was the alcohol content. And ordinary beer was like 2.8%. Yes, a beer that was 2.8%. That was back in the days when that's pretty much all people drank. And the special went up to 5%. Now, beers are starting at 5% and going up to the sky's the limit, aren't they? Goodness me. And um, to ordinary, normal. What's extraordinary? We want to be extraordinary. We don't want to be special. Well, we do want to be special, but the route to becoming special is being extraordinary. Extraordinary means doing the normal, simple things as and when they are required, as and when they are necessary, to an extremely high level. That is extraordinary, not only in the practice room, but in your life. Replying to that email. <clears throat> talking to myself here, replying to that voicemail message, contacting that person, reaching out to this person, doing the simple things, right, playing your scales, playing your flexibilities, practicing with a metronome on, yeah, we'll say another podcast all in his own, isn't it, of course. But that's the difference between being extraordinary and being special. It's amazing these words in our vocabulary that just float by us, that we learn as children. Extraordinary. More normal, more ordinary than everybody else. Let's look at um, the difference. How we play the normal things. How we practice the normal things. What's the difference between concentration and awareness? Should I be giving this stuff away? <laughs> Probably not. Feeling generous today. What's the difference between concentration and awareness? Concentration is something that happens in our head. It's something that happens in our conscious brain. It, you know, that in my case, that idiot that talks to me all day long. That blithering idiot that thinks he can solve my problems and can't. That blithering idiot that thinks about pancakes when I'm playing long notes. That blithering idiot that thinks about wine, thinks about 
You name it, you know what I'm talking about. Even when you're having conversations with somebody else, because our conscious mind is not under control. So, when your teacher tells you to concentrate, when you tell yourself to concentrate, what does it mean? It means, really, to be aware of what is happening in you, around you, the sounds, the smells, the feelings, the wind in the trees, the smell of the coffee, and focusing on that. That really is what concentration is. Not listening to that fool in your head who tells you that it can solve your problems for you. You can't. And we talk about the subconscious. You know, subconsciously, I think I knew that already. The subconscious is what's there when you turn that blithering idiot off. When you manage to get it under, finally under control. The subconscious is you. And when you turn that rambling nonsense off, that goes for this podcast as well. And you put your focus on what you're doing in your plane. That's your awareness, it's not your concentration. You're aware of what is happening. And when you are aware of what is happening, you can adjust and change what is happening. And this speaks against the imagining what you do. I have become aware <laughs> of some people who uh, I know to be incredibly intelligent and really fine musicians, but they don't always play that way. And sometimes if you listen too hard to what's going on in your head, you're not aware of what's actually happening. Think about that. The awareness of what you are doing, how you are sounding, what you are creating. Awareness of this sound canvas, this tapestry that's in the air around you. That's the area that you create. You are creating art in sound, in the space in front, left, right, above and below you. That's where it's actually becoming real. So having um, awareness of what you are doing is something that's very important. Having awareness of what is happening around you all of the time so that you don't spend your life with this out-of-control organ of thought ruining things for you and it's very well intentioned isn't it it's you know it's like don't worry about this difficult passage Ian I've got this one for you I'm gonna show you oh no <laughs> we've all been there haven't we I think that's about it I wrote oh no there is it there is another linked on to that here's another bit I I talked I had a long conversation with quite a, a prominent, and certainly from my my perspective, a very highly respected trombone player, someone I respect a lot, about beta blockers. 
And uh, this was years ago, we were talking about it. And he said, you know, the generation before us, they didn't have the problem with nerves that we did. But then I guess if you kind of spent years of your life being shot at, you're not going to get scared by Brahms 1, are you? And it was like, you know, we had a bit of a laugh. And yeah, I guess so, you know. Got bullets whistling past your ear, you know. You're not going to get frightened by, you know, someone down there with a white stick in their hand. <laughs> but I wonder over the years whether it's actually something different to that. I wonder as years have gone by, we've lost awareness in general and gone more and more into our head of course technology like this that you're listening to on an iphone or you know with headphones on doesn't get you out of your head as it were you know it doesn't get you out of your conscious brain um but maybe without the distractions of so much media technology i mean i remember when I started in the music business back in the early 80s, I mean, some people never even read newspapers. They didn't. And, you know, every now and then, back, you go a bit before that, they turn the radio on to get the news from the one channel. And so all of this, I mean, we know what's happening. You know, if a butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the world, it flashes up on your phone on the other. You know, it's... And it's, it's, this technology is an incredible, incredible, incredibly wonderful thing. I, I speak to you through it now, for better or worse. But I wonder whether over the years, our awareness of life and the experience of life and the beauty of life, the true beauty of life, that's what's around us and what we're creating, is becoming less and less. And I wonder... And this is where is the relevance of this without the... It's not even Sunday and I'm speaking from the pulpit, aren't I? I wonder if the reason why we get stage fright more, perhaps, these days is because when we perform, we have no choice. We cannot be in our heads. We have to be in the room. It's too much of a critical situation. And it's not a place we're used to being. We're not used to being aware. We're not used to having our awareness in the room. It, we're used to just having it in our head. And the shock of being driven out of our brains and out into reality is too much for us. And so I wonder that, going back to that story about the uh, bullets whistling, whistling past your ears or whatever, whether that makes you incredibly, incredibly aware <laughs> It'd have to, wouldn't it? I um, occasionally go and stand in my local woods. When I say local, I could probably throw a tennis ball in it from here. So it's very close to civilization, very close to, you know, safety. But it gets very dark. And um, I go and stand there when it's pitch black um, around... 11 o'clock or midnight, and I just stand. And sometimes I take my little boy with me. Don't do this at home, folks, unless you can guarantee it's safe. Um, in fact, we can even see our house. 
But let me tell you that within five minutes, you can hear every twig snap. You can hear every mouse rustle through the leaves. And you are aware of a different awareness. Aware of a different awareness. Very good. You are aware of another facet to us as human beings that is not normally there. And inevitably, after about 10 to 15 minutes, my, my boy says, can we go back now? And I've heard something and I've got the light on on my mobile phone. What is that? You know, um, and a couple of times ago, there were two eyes staring back at me. I don't know what it was. Just <laughs> And the last time, there were two deer trampled very close by us. And it's like, you think, wow, we used to live like this as a species. We'd live in woods. And it's a different awareness, a different sense. And so I'm not suggesting you do that. That's a bit silly. I am a bit silly. Um, but I am suggesting that rather than analyzing in your head, which might lead to conscious brain paralysis and a downward spiral, you really concentrate on putting your awareness into the room. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me and always go to uh, ianbowsfield.com for lots more interesting stuff.